When I was 10 years old in the First Baptist Church of Nashville, this young pastor came in with his wife and he preached a polished, beautiful, moving message. And after he ministered that Sunday morning, we were actually asked to host for dinner. And so they were invited to our home and that young minister was Martin Luther King Jr. Many people know Dr. King to be a great, great leader, but I don't know that it, it's understood that he himself confessed he was afraid. There came a night when he was ready to pack up his bags, put his family in the car, and go north. He was done with it. And that's when he cried out to God. And the Lord impressed upon him and spoke to him and said, you've been chosen for this hour. How powerful that Dr. King continued to press, press, because he understood his mission, he understood his purpose. He said, I have chosen to stick with love. Hate is too great of a burden to bear. And so understand this was a powerful message that was being preached to a people that had a real reason to hate. But it was not until I accepted Jesus as my savior at 19 when I realized that Jesus came and brought in the whole element of love. He only said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor just like you do yourself. We began to understand what that meant. However, it was still very difficult to accept the fact that with the mistreatment, our response had to be a response of love. In Dr. King's famous speech, I have a dream. His dream was that little white boys and white girls would hold hands with little black boys and black girls. And that is what I see truly happening in Purpose Church. And they're loving Jesus together. That was the whole movement. And that really was the heart of God. He prayed this most wonderful and profound prayer. Use me, God. Show me how to take who I am, who I want to be, and what I can do, and use it for a purpose greater than myself. Oh, how wonderful that might be, that each one of us would pray a prayer, God, use me for a purpose greater than myself. God is love. And Martin Luther King Jr. came and he preached that word. Why is it important today? Because love is key. The heart of God is seen in that movement to love a person rather than hate them, no matter what they've done to you. Great to see a Purpose Church on this Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Uh, before we dig into God's word, could I just take a moment to thank you for your uh, end of year giving in December. You helped us to finish 2022 strong so that we can charge into 2023 with all that God has called on us to do as a church. Just let me give you a, a two examples, one local and one global. Uh, first of all, locally. 
Every week we serve hundreds of members of our local community with breakfasts and lunches and showers and articles of clothing and naps using our cots and worship services in the hardest places of our city through our microsites, uh, baptism, sports outreach, after-school tutoring, Christmas toy and bike and food giveaways and job training. And through the efforts, now globally, the efforts of Purpose Church, uh, 3,500 people have now found hope in God in India. 3,500 through your efforts, locally and globally. And I just praise God for your faithfulness, which has made these things and hundreds of others' ministries and outreaches just like them uh, possible. And I am so grateful uh, for you, uh, my church family. Now we're continuing our 2023 series in which we cover the 66 books of the Bible in 52 weeks. And the title of our series is Jesus on Every Page. And we're going to see how Jesus is in every book of the Bible and how he's the lead of humanity's story. Uh, the title for these first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses is Where It All Began. And the title for today's study, the third in the series, Genesis, Exodus, now Leviticus, Jesus, our sacrificial substitute. Now the approach that we will usually be taking with each book is first of all the head, the, then the heart, and then the hands. Uh, the head means what can we know about that book, uh, this book, the book of the week, that will help us to better understand it. The heart will ask the question, where is Jesus in each book? And then the hands. How does this book apply practically to my everyday life? So let's start with the head. Orienting data for Leviticus. A content. It has various laws having to do with holiness before God and with love of neighbor, including sacrifices, ritual cleanness, and social obligations, as well as laws for the Levites regarding their priestly duties. And then the emphasis of the book of Leviticus, getting it right with regard to worship for both people and the priest, institution of the priesthood under Aaron, laws protecting ritual cleanness, including atonement for sins, the day of atonement, laws regulating sexual relations, family life, punishments for major crimes, festivals and special years, Sabbaths and Jubilees. Now we tend to think of Leviticus as the most boring book in the Bible. But when you discover Jesus in Leviticus, it becomes one of the most exciting books in the Bible. Uh, most of the book is a picture and a foreshadowing of Jesus. But let me give you just one example as we move to the heart section of today's uh, study. I'll have the Lamb. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called uh, to Moses. Uh, called is from the Hebrew word weyorai, um, uh, which is a, a calling. God's uh, reaching out to us. He's calling to us uh, to restore our relationship uh, between us and him. A perfect God and sinful humanity. The Lord weyorai. Uh, called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering, uh, this is from the Hebrew word korban, which means to come near to God. And in these two words, we have the whole book of Leviticus summarized. Why ore, 
Uh, God calls, uh, offering, Corbain, come near to God. Uh, it's a book about reconciling us with God. When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And so you would select the animal uh, from that you could uh, afford in order to bring that as a sacrifice uh, to God. And so if you were poor, you brought a bird. If you were middle class, you brought a lamb. And if you were rich, you brought a bull. And this is how we know that Jesus, uh, for example, was born uh, poor. Because at his child dedication in the temple, Mary and Joseph offered either two doves or two pigeons. Now we move on to verse 3. If the offering is a bird offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. Okay, without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that, if it's without defect, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You're to bring only the best animal from your herd. You're to bring the, the best animal from your herd, not one that's about to die anyway. Not the least of your herd, the best of your herd. Uh, the story is often told of a lost and found item in the newspaper that read like this, lost dog, three legs, blind in his left eye, missing his right ear, his tail is broken, recently hit by a truck, he answers to the name Lucky. So God says, don't bring me Lucky. Bring me the best uh, from your herd, and then it will be acceptable uh, to the Lord because your heart will be saying, God, I want to bring you your best, uh, not my leftovers. And then verse 4, you are to lay your hand on the head of, uh, on the, head of the bird offering. And it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You're to lay your hand on the head of the bird offering. Literally in the Hebrew it means to lean on the lamb. You're to lean on the lamb. And if you do that, then it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement so that your sins are forgiven. Uh, this means uh, four things are happening here. First of all, anyone can come to God because anyone could afford two birds or maybe they could even catch a pigeon and offer it to God. So it was available, uh, forgiveness was available to everyone. Anyone could come. Number two, they were involved in their worship. They weren't passive. They had to actively choose the animal uh, that was to be sacrificed. And so they were all involved in the worship. Anyone could come. They were involved. Number three, there was a cost involved. Uh, there's always a cost for sin. Something has to die because of sin. And so there's a cost involved. In this case, the animal, it costs that animal its, its life uh, in, in place of us so that we could be forgiven. And then fourthly, we bring our best. Uh, for us, we bring God our best. Uh, we bring him, um, probably you're watching this on the first day the first morning of the week, we come on that first day, that first morning of the week. That's why normally we have worship services at that time to say, God, we bring you the first fruits, the first of this week. We give God our quiet time when we spend time reading the Bible and in prayer, our quiet time with God. We bring him when we're at our best in the day, not when we're falling asleep. We bring him the best time of the day rather than the leftovers of the day. Uh, when we tithe, we give him the first 10% of our income, 
not the leftovers, uh, what's left over after we spend all of our money uh, on ourselves. Now there's another foreshadowing of Jesus in chapter 17, verse 10. He says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. This was to avoid a satanic ritual which involved the drinking of the blood. They were to use the blood as a sacrifice and as a symbol of foreshadowing of Christ and his shedding of his blood on the cross. The Bible says, for without the remission of sins, there, there is no forgiveness. It is only, uh, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of, of sins. There is no forgiveness of sin. But they were to avoid drinking it because that was involved in the satanic rituals of that day. And I understand it's involved in the rituals of today as well. Then uh, back to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 5. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And then skipping to verse 9. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. <clears throat> now, why was it pleasing to the Lord? Because it had been done God's way, not our own way. We like to play God and make up our own way to God, and make up our own morality. We're going to say, God, this is what seems moral to me. I'm not asking you. I'm asking you to accept what I think is morality. Or I'm, I'm going to just come to you in any way that I choose, and I'm going to expect you to accept me on my terms rather than me coming to you on your terms. But God says, do it my way if you want my blessing. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it is only pleasing to the Lord. It is only acceptable to the Lord when we come God's way, the way he's prescribed, not uh, putting ourselves in the position of God and playing God and saying, God, this is what I consider morality. This is what I consider the way to come to you. This started back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned and God initiated his plan to cover our sin. Genesis 3, verse 21. Then God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, whenever I've read that before, I thought to myself that this is just because they were ashamed of their nakedness. But there's something else that's going on here. In order to make garments of skin for them to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness, something had to die. God had to kill something in order for their sin to be covered. And that's what started in God's plan for our forgiveness from the very beginning, even from Genesis and where it all begins in the Garden of Eden. And this started a picture of Jesus that we now see in Leviticus and which Pastor Eric showed us last week in Exodus with the Passover. In the Passover of Exodus, Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames. Uh, the sign of the cross was made when the Israelites 
uh, on the night before the death angel was coming through the land in order to protect themselves uh, from the judgment of God, they, they took the Passover lamb and the shed blood of the Passover lamb and they put it on the sides and they put it on the top. And in, in doing so, they foreshadowed the cross of Jesus Christ. They put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And then um, moving on to verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. This is where we get uh, the Passover. I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then in John verse, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the Lamb of God first talked about in the book of Leviticus 1,400 years earlier that takes away the sin of the world. You know, the book of Hebrews, which we will come to in our series on Thanksgiving weekend, we already know we're, we're going to preach on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to do the book of Hebrews, and it's basically a commentary. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is basically a commentary on the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And the title that day will be, Jesus, Our Greater Sacrifice. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 7 the law is only a shadow, that is Leviticus, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins." But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Jesus is saying, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll I have come to do your will, my God. And so Jesus presents himself on the cross and said, thy will be done. Priests sacrifice animals all day long. You talk about monotonous. They were never done because people never stopped sinning. And they did it for 1,400 years, or at least many of those years. Uh, sometimes they were in exile and unable to do it, but wherever they are, uh, doing whatever they could, they would continue to, when they had the opportunity, sacrifice for 1,400 years, 72,800 weeks, 509,600 days, 6,115,200 hours, if they sacrifice an animal every 10 minutes, that would be 36,691,200 sacrifices. And as the priest did this day in and day out, I'm sure they asked themselves the question, will I ever be done? What if we could have just one sacrifice and just be done with it? Verse 11 
day after day, every priest stands because there was no furniture in the tabernacle and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And that's why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Y-O-R-A, the Lord calls out to you, Corbain, if you want peace with God, come near. That summarizes Jesus is the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus is foreshadowing Jesus with those two words, those two Hebrew words, Y-O-R-A, the Lord calls out to you. I, I, I want to be reconciled with you. I want you forgiven. I want our relationship to be restored. And then Corbain, if you want peace with God, come near. And here's the way to do it. In Leviticus, through the sacrifices which foreshadow Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now I have more to share, but I feel led to pause right here and to just say, have you ever received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever uh, come near God, Waiore, God is calling you. Corbain, will you come near through Jesus? Would you pray with me right now if you'd like to do that? And would you just, wherever you are, in your living room or by your computer or listening in your car later on, would you just pray three words? Sorry, thank you, and please. God, I'm sorry for the sin and the wrongdoing in my life. But thank you that Jesus came and, and offered himself on the cross and rose from the grave so that I could be forgiven. Sorry, thank you, and then say to the Lord, please, please, uh, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please come into my heart. Please have mercy on me. I'll have the lamb. I'll have the lamb. Because uh, the lamb is the only way through the lamb, Jesus, that I can be made right with a holy God in spite of my sin, my sins forgiven, covered uh, by the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if you agree with me, wherever you're listening or watching right now, would you say with me out loud, amen and amen. Now, with the remainder of our time together, let's finish with the hand section. Our head, we've learned more about, um, gotten a feel for Leviticus. Our heart, we've seen Jesus in Leviticus. And now our hands. What is one practical lesson that we can take away from Leviticus? And it's actually a proof of the Bible being a supernatural book. There are thousands of proofs uh, that this is no ordinary book, that this is a supernatural book. I'm going to give you one more here in, in, the, in the few minutes that we have remaining. But there's a very practical application behind that proof for God's Word uh, being a supernatural book. So let's talk about Time Machine Moses. In the five books of Moses, but mainly in Leviticus, Moses gives us health regulations from 3,400 years ago. 
uh, 3,300 years before modern science and, and, and medicine discovered them to be true uh, over the past 100 years. It's as if Moses took a time machine to the present, learned all that he could, and took it back to 1400 B.C. Uh, the book of, uh, of Leviticus is like archaeologists discovering a car or an airplane from, 14, from 1400 uh, B.C. They would ask the question, how did that get there? Uh, whenever I'm tempted to think, uh, boy, I wish I had lived during the time of Little House on the Prairie. Kimberly and I and our family, we like to watch Little House on the Prairie. And every once in a while, you get nostalgic and say, would it be great to live during that time? But two words bring me back to my senses once again. And those two words are modern medicine. Modern medicine. I love modern medicine. When I have surgery, I do not want to bite a stick or bite down on a bullet or a piece of leather. Uh, I, I don't want a shot of whiskey uh, for my anesthesia. I love modern medicine. If you are in the medical field in any way, uh, I, I love you so, so much. Kimberly will tell you that I just love my doctor. I, I do everything my doctor tells me to precisely, except for losing weight. I haven't been that good about obeying what he's telling me to do in that one area, but in everything else, man, I just, if the doctor says it, I'm doing it because I love modern medicine. And in, but, but having said that, until about 100 years ago, medicine was actually pretty bad. <laughs> it was actually pretty bad until about 100 years ago. Uh, as recently as 1881, President James Garfield was shot by an assassin, but that's not what killed him. Uh, the doctors caused infection of the wound because they dug around in him looking for the bullet uh, with unwashed hands. Uh, something we would know to do today, but they didn't know, know even as recently as 1881. Something Moses told us not to do 3,300 years earlier. Moses told us, don't do that with unwashed hands. And yet they were still doing it in 1881. He died two months later, not from the gunshot wound, but from the infection. One of the reasons that George Washington died was because when he got sick, his doctors drained five pints of blood out of him. That's almost the limit as to what you can lose. And they drained five pints out of him. Uh, the main medicine in the Quran, which was written by Muhammad around 600 A.D., is camel urine mixed in milk. Camel urine mixed in milk. Now, I don't mean any disrespect to the Quran, because that is exactly what you'd expect to find in a book uh, written uh, by a human from that time period. So no disrespect to the Quran. That's just what you'd expect from something um, what, about 1,400 years ago, written by a human, you'd expect those kinds of things. The Quran says that if a fly lands in your cup, it's okay because one wing, wing of, the, of the fly has the disease and the other has the antidote to the disease. But the particular ancient quackery that we want to look at right now is from the time of Moses. 
And it's, and it's from the Egypt that he lived in for so many years, and the Israelites did as well. In an Egyptian papyrus, uh, Eber's manuscript, uh, translated in S.E. Massingill's uh, sketch of medicine and pharmacy, he, it gives a list of Egyptian medicines from this time period. Lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, stinking fat, moisture from pig's ears. Next time you're at uh, the L.A. County Fair, just when nobody's looking, take out a Q-tip, swab it through the ear of a pig and pop it in your mouth. I've just killed your appetite, haven't I? Milk, goose grease, donkey's hooves, animal fats from various sources, excreta from animals including human beings, donkeys, antelopes, dogs, cats, and even uh, flies. Now this is not to disrespect the ancient Egyptians because they were brilliant in other areas like astronomy and engineering. They just weren't great at medicine because no one was great at medicine back then. Uh, no one was great at it until about 100 years ago after World War I. Uh, in one of the great understatements, Egyptologist Lise Manike uh, writes, in general, Coptic or Egyptian medicine is not held in high esteem. Now, why is this important? Because in Acts 7, verse 22, it says Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Flavius Josephus, who's the great Jewish historian, uh, in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, he says that Moses was a prince of Egypt who was a great general who led the Egyptian army in a successful war against the Ethiopian Empire. But he was educated as a prince of Egypt in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, including their medical wisdom. So Leviticus is miraculous, not just only for what it includes, but also for what it does not include. Uh, Grant Jeffrey, in his book, Signature of God, writes, both the writer of the Torah and the millions of ancient Israelite slaves would have absorbed the medical knowledge and traditional treatments of the Egyptians during the centuries of Israel's captivity. However, a close examination of the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses, does not include a single reference to these deadly medical cures of the pagan Egyptian society in which Moses and the Israelites were raised. Rather, we discover in the pages of ancient scriptures the most advanced sanitation instructions and the most sophisticated medical knowledge that the world has ever known until the explosion of medical research in this century following World War I. Any intelligent reader must ask this question, where did Moses obtain his incredibly advanced medical knowledge? Obviously, he did not receive this accurate medical knowledge from the Egyptians or any other pagan culture of that time. This advanced and accurate knowledge reveals a profound understanding of germs, infectious transmission routes, human sanitation needs, and many other medical advances unknown outside the Bible until the last 35 centuries. Uh, out of the 613 biblical uh, commandments found in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 213 are detailed medical regulations um, thousands of years before modern medicine and modern scientists discovered them 
to be uh, true. Let me, let me just give you one example out of the 213. Just one out of 213. God's health plan to prevent pandemics. Uh, the priests were the first medical control officers in human history. Leviticus 13, verse 40. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. A man, let's go back to that verse. I want to just linger on it for just a moment. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. So all you bald guys out there, this has got to be one of your favorite verses as it is mine. But actually, it's talking about skin diseases here. So let's move on in verse 41. If he has lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he is clean. But if he has a reddish white sore on his bald head or forehead, it is a defiling disease breaking out on his head or forehead. The priest is to examine him, and if the swollen sore on his head or forehead is reddish white like a defiling skin disease, the man is diseased and is unclean, the priest shall pronounce him unclean because of the sore on his head. Now again, this is about controlling skin diseases like leprosy or, or something like that. Uh, verse 45, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. Uh, this right here, unclean, unclean, uh, this is in the original Hebrew, literally means um, tested COVID positive, tested COVID positive. That's not true. I, I'm just kidding. That's a lie. That's not true. But it's the same principle. It's the same principle as today, having to let your place of work or let people know that you've tested COVID positive. This is how they would do it back then. Uh, verse 46, as long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Now, this sounds harsh, but it was for their protection. And when they got well, they could come back into the camp uh, once again. Uh, they were especially concerned around the time of the festivals in the same way that during the pandemic, we were especially concerned about airports or events uh, like the Olympics. Now, how did they know to do this? How, how did they know in 1400 BC to do this? The germ theory of disease was not settled science until the 1890s. Uh, for example, the bubonic plague killed a third of Europe's population between 1200 and 1400 AD. And the theories of what caused it ranged from things like the planets being out of alignment all the way to people believed it was caused by garlic or pepper. Finally, according to historians, the pastors in the city of Vienna began to preach on what to do from the book of Leviticus, and the plague was stopped. Uh, in his epic work, A History of Medicine, Arturo Castiglione uh, writes, the laws against leprosy in Leviticus 13 may be regarded as the first model of a sanitary legislation. You know, even Time Magazine did an eight-page article on the connection between faith and wellness. And Time Magazine stated that research has shown that attending religious services will add two to three years to your life. 
just by enduring to the end of this message. You have added years to your life. One last example. We're going to go back to Genesis. I'm going to cheat a little bit. Go back a couple of books to Genesis 17, verse 12. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Who's eight days old? Why not seven days? Why not nine days? Why not the eighth month instead of the eighth day? Uh, why not do like they do in some cultures who circumcise a young man when he reaches his 13th birthday? Ouch. Think about that for a moment, guys. Um, uh, well, we've just discovered that our two clotting mechanisms, vitamin K and prothrombonin, uh, thrombonin, uh, excuse me, prothrombin, prothrombin, We've just discovered that these two clotting mechanisms, they, scientists have just discovered that they peak in your body at 110% on, you guessed it, the eighth day. How'd they know that? How, how, did, they, how did they know that in 1400 B.C.? And this is just one of a thousand pieces of evidence, fulfilled prophecy, so many other things, uh, evidence for the resurrection, all these things that are just great for defending uh, and, 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 and sharing our supernatural Bible. But there's something else. I, I just want to end with this. Imagine how foolish the Israelites felt believing in something that nobody around them Nobody in the cultures around them. Nobody else believed. And, and, and doing things that no one else around them was doing. Do you imagine how foolish they felt? And let me just ask you a question. Is there anything like that for us? Uh, is there anything in our culture that only Christians believe and nobody else believes and everybody else is kind of saying we're so narrow-minded, or everybody else is saying uh, that, that we're, we're crazy. Do, do you ever feel that? Things that if we obey them by faith now, we will know the reasons later in our life, or 3,300 years later, like we find in Leviticus, or maybe it'll take till we get to heaven someday. But I want to encourage you, follower of Jesus, you hang in there. Even if, even if we're the only ones that believe it, even if they're all, we're the only ones that do it, and everybody around us does things differently, and everybody around us believes things differently, you hang in there because like we find in Leviticus, this book, if you make it your guide in life for what you believe, you approach God in the way he wants to be approached. You live your life in the way he says, not playing God and telling God how we're going to live our life. If you will by faith do it, I promise you, someday by sight in heaven, you'll realize that it was true all along, just like uh, they discovered 
uh, we've discovered 3,300 years later from the book of Leviticus. Let's pray together. First of all, Lord, we give you our heads. Thank you for increasing our knowledge just a little bit over the last few minutes so that we can understand this uh, book of Leviticus better. Lord, we, we present you our hands. Help us to um, uh, obey you, to trust you in order to obey you, even when things don't make sense, even when other people don't believe them in our culture, or other people uh, aren't doing the same things or not doing the same things in our culture. We give you our hands because we believe we trust in you enough to follow you. We trust you, so we obey you. And then finally, Lord, we give you our hearts. Um, Jesus, on every page of God's word, cover to cover, Jesus, our sacrificial substitute, behold, behold, the Lamb of God. And all God's family said, amen and amen. Behold the Lamb of God, O thou for sinners slain. Let it not be in vain that thou hast died. Thee for my Savior let me take. My only refuse let me make thy pierced side. Behold the Lamb of God, into the sacred flood of thy most precious blood my soul I cast. Wash me and make me clean within and keep me pure from every sin till life be past. Behold the Lamb of God, all hail incarnate word, thou everlasting Lord, Savior most blessed. Fill us with love that never faints. Grant us with all thy blessed saints eternal rest. Behold the Lamb of God. Worthy is he alone to sit upon the throne of God above. One with the Ancient of all days. One with the Comforter and praise. All light and love.